Hi, I'm Trevor Cochran and this is The Garden Gurus Live, a weekly show where I'll share seasonal gardening advice, feature a variety of gardeners from all across Australia and give listeners the opportunity to interact and ask your garden questions. To join the chat live and ask your gardening questions, all you need to do is like our Facebook page and tune in every Friday at 12pm Australian Eastern Standard Time. This program is brought to you by The Garden Gurus and Scott's Performance Naturals. Scott's Performance Naturals is the 100% natural and sustainable way to grow and feed your garden. Backed by years of research and developed by scientists, the technology employed enhances natural processes, allowing extra strong growth. The Performance Naturals range contains organic materials such as Nature-N, blood and bone, seaweed, biostimulants, manure and feather meal to improve the soil and encourage microbial and earthworm activity. To find out more about the Scott's Performance Naturals range, head to lovethegarden.com.au. Good morning, hello, I'm Trevor Cochran. Welcome to The Garden Gurus Live. I'm really looking forward to sharing some tips and hints and secrets today as we go along, but most importantly, answering your questions. And that's what this morning's all about. We've had so many in the last few weeks that it seemed appropriate that we would do one extra session before Christmas to help you out with your garden problems. Now, we do have some prizes to give away today. In fact, there's three delicious books just like this and we're just about out of them so we're coming to the very end of this run and I'm working on a new book at the moment so hopefully the middle of next year we'll have something we can share with you but three of those and I've got five fabulous packets of seed from Mr Fothergill Seed that you can win and all you have to do is simply post us your garden question and of course make sure you share with us the suburb that you live in the state and suburb ideally um, and I will do my very best to answer them. Now we have got some amazing questions already flowed through on our Facebook page this morning and I'm going to fly through them as quickly as I can today and get through as many as I can. So stay with us. Remember if you've got something that you're trying to get us to identify then send us a picture as well. It really does help. Now, we're going to start off with Melissa in Melbourne. Hello, Melissa. Hello to everybody in Melbourne. I think weevils are destroying my agave and other succulent plants. Now, if you're getting these little, like, chunks taken out of the leaves and it's causing this scarring all over the leaves, it could be weevils. It could also be something like slaters. Now, there are garden dusts that are really effective for these. Um, Deris dusts are generally really good at knocking weevils and, well... In particular, things like slaters, it'll knock them right off. So when you head into your local garden centre, ask them for deris dust or one of the derivatives of, of deris dust. There are some sulphur dusts which are also pretty effective. They pretty much just make the, um, the, the flesh of these plants unappealing. If you want to know why they're doing it, they're doing it to get moisture, which suggests that there's not enough moisture in the soil. Weevils, not so much, but definitely slaters will eat uh, rotting, decaying matter before they'll go to green material. And generally they'll go to green material looking for moisture. So there's a little tip there. If you can increase the moisture at ground level, you'll probably find that that alone will make a big difference. If not, try dusting the plants. Now we're rolling right along. We're heading to Queensland. Um, and hello, Kate. Now you've got an anthurium. Now they're beautiful. They're those flamingo flowers and the leaves are dying back slowly from the tip. Now that tends to indicate that they're getting too much salt in the soil mix around the base of them. Now, salt can be absorbed in a few different ways. One of the things that you can do is you can use something called amorphosilicate. So that's uh, also known as diatomaceous earth. And you can put a little layer around the top of it, but don't get the pool version because it's got chemicals in it. So uh, just a little bit of advice there. Um, the other thing you could do, and, and it's not a bad thing to be doing right at the moment, is just to repot it and uh, get yourself some of that fantastic um, Osmocote indoor potting mix. So that's great because if you're using it, you're not getting a situation where you're... Um, when you're using something like that in particular, you're not getting a situation where you're getting a build-up of any kind of um, organic material, so therefore fungus gnats and so on are not coming in. 
Sarah, um, now I'm not sure where you're from, Sarah, but this is a bit of a universal question, so it's not a bad way to go uh, with a solution. Uh, you want to know, is there any way to keep snails off plants without using pesticides as you've got dogs too? You've tried beer traps, but they didn't work. The trick with beer traps is you probably need to put five or ten of them down in around a vegetable garden, so that's a couple of large bottles of beer, but um, you also need to make sure that they're deep and about that wide, and if you do it, they will go to it. The other thing you can use is copper. Uh, so snails are a mollusk and uh, mollusks have no tolerance to copper. So you can use something like bluestone and that will help enormously in the control. So you just put layers of it around the outside of the garden beds and you can't go wrong. Big hello to Tala in New South Wales. She's sent us a Merry Christmas. Beautiful rain falling today in Aberdeen, Upper Hunter Valley, New South Wales, and a lot more out of the farm at Leadville in the central tablelands of New South Wales. And I'm hearing that from all my friends in New South Wales and north into Queensland as well. You're getting a lot of rain up there. On the west coast and in Darwin also, we're seeing a lot of rain in the north at the moment. I think Broome had something like a metre of rainfall in three days uh, in the last few days. So that's um, it's phenomenal rain, but it's great to be getting it for you guys up there. And even our friends down in, uh, in Sydney, I know, have had a lot of rainfall. But in the south now, things are definitely drying out. So Melbourne, uh, definitely Adelaide, Perth really starting to dry out and we're getting very different problems and that's the reason why it's really important. You tell us where you're from. Tell a Merry Christmas to you too from all the Guru, guru tribe here. Now, John, in Melbourne, speaking of Melbourne, I've got, now he sent us a picture, I've got this Gardenia Florida, I, but I'm getting bugs that are eating the new leaves. Also not getting many flowers. Do I put on a pest control? But uh, I do put on pest control, but I keep forgetting to do that. Can you help me, please? Okay. I might have got that a little confused. But let me let me help you out with this. For a start, this is a plant that is extremely hungry. I can just tell from the picture that we've got up that it's it looks really, really hungry. And gardenias are prolific feeders during the warmer months. So during the colder months, they really shut down and don't grow. Their metabolism slows. But in the warm months, they need to be fed because their metabolism increases and you'll get lots and lots of growth. So I'd be re recommending a controlled release fertiliser. In fact, I'd recommend that you use a liquid fertiliser over the foliage at the moment. Um, the bugs that are eating it, they do look like they're being chewed by something more like a grasshopper than anything. And again, a bit of a sulphur dust uh, or a derris dust would probably do it the world of good, but it's, it's not a significant problem. The real problem there is those light yellow new leaves as they emerge. That's your indicator that you're lacking trace elements. And just by the way, whilst we're talking about it, in the top of the pot there, you can see crabgrass emerging. Take the crabgrass out because that'll be competing for nutrients as well. Hopefully that helped. Um, Let's go to Perth. Hello, Claudia. Um, you've got peach leaf curl and you've only just noticed this problem with some of our trees. You're new to stone fruit, so you didn't spray them in autumn or early spring, and now the trees are in full leaf and they're getting some fruit buds developing as well. What to do? Is it too late to spray now at the end of October? Um, absolutely. Definitely it's too late, pretty much from October through till, well, really right through until they drop their leaves. The best time is to spray them in the autumn after they've defoliated and uh, or early winter, and then again in late winter before you get the new burst of growth. This is where you're going to use a combination of, of sprays. So something like cuprix hydroxide or copper oxychloride. You can buy things like coside, which is, uh, is cupric hydroxide, and you spray over the stems and you basically should be able to cover them. You can also use a lime sulfur mix and that's a really good way to go as well. But I would be recommending at the moment that you leave them, let them grow. They will grow out and that's a really good thing. Artie, hello. We're not quite sure where you are, Artie, but I'm looking at your lawn. Thank you for sending the picture in. And it's looking very, very dry. Now, this is very common right across the southern states at the moment. So I'd suggest you're probably in Perth, Melbourne or Adelaide. Looking at the dry patches, the problem is easy to solve. What you've got is twofold. One is it's drying out, which suggests that the sprinklers are not reaching it. So you need to look at your irrigation system, make sure it's turned on, that it's functioning properly because that big dry patch is one issue. The way you solve that, which is the second issue, is to apply a wetting agent. Now, wetting agents are generally applied in one of two ways. You can do a granular or a liquid. 
I think I'd be putting a liquid over that particular um, dry patch, but even the other little patches around the outside, I'd soak those. And then I'd give it a really good water with one of those um, very, very good uh, fast action fertilizers. Now there's one from Osmocote, it's, uh, sorry, from Lawn Builder. It's called Extreme Green. And that's going to help uh, literally, it'll bring it back within days. You'll st start to see it turning green where the lawn is still alive. Now this is a hose on, so liquid fertilizer, uh, sorry, liquid wetting agent down first. Soak the ground, give it a really good soak to the point where you actually see it bubbling. That means that the moisture is getting right into the surface and the, the wetting agent has been activated and then apply your fertiliser probably 24 hours afterwards. With Extreme Green, if you were to apply it today or tomorrow, within four to five days, the rest of your lawn and, and generally patches within this brown patch will turn a nice dark green colour. Now's the time to act, because if you leave that for much longer, it's going to be quite a significant problem. Now, we're in Perth with Ken, who's one of our um, regulars, and Ken, good morning to you. I bought several 40 millimetre tubes of edible ginger and pandanus plants yesterday from a nursery. Well done. I'd like to know the best way to grow them in pots in relationship to the pot size, the potting mix, the mulching material and growing conditions. Okay, let's start with the ginger. Ginger loves a moist soil, so get yourself a really good potting mixture. In both instances, you really want to make sure you've got one of those premium potting mixes. I use Osmocote at home. I'm using the Osmocote with the red tick. So it's the professional blend. Keep your eye out for it. It's a really good mix. Um, and generally it's in the blue packaging. You don't need to mulch, so I'd plant into that. The ginger will take off. Now the key with it is to make sure that you've got lots of room. So I use trays, so they're about, I don't know what's that, 60 centimetres wide by about 90 centimetres long. And they only need to be about that deep. So it's not a deep rooted plant, Ginger. Uh, that'll do really well. Pandanus is totally different. So Pandanus, you want a big round pot. You probably want something in the range of around about 60, 600 mil or so wide, I think that's probably a good description, um, and nice and deep. Now, pandanus do love um, a sheltered spot. Edible ginger loves a nice, lightly brit, uh, lit, bright spot, so it needs to be really warm and hot. Hotter it is, better they are. Pandanus, little bit of protection from our hot, scorching sun will encourage the plant to grow really well. So if you've got a shaded position in the afternoon, but full sun in the morning, ideal scenario. And again, both with really good potting mix. I think I've ticked all the boxes there for you. I hope that helps, Ken. Neville in Carlisle, is there any information specific to purse range of edible weeds? There are some books out there actually that, um, I know I've got some sitting up in the library here behind me, and um, that describe edible weeds. You do need to make sure you check it. There are a lot of really good edible weeds. I know one that I talk about all the time is uh, is that beautiful, and we, we call it um, we call it portulaca, but um, it's also known as purslane, and it's the richest source of omega-3 fatty acids. And that's just a weed that most people didn't do anything with, but if you were to buy it, it would cost you a fair bit down the local market. So. Um, there are a lot of those really good weeds. Yes, there is. You do need to head into your local bookstore, Neville, and ask for it. But there are a couple out there that are available. I can't hear the titles or the authors off the top of my head, but they'll find them for you pretty quick because they are called, uh, I think it's your guide to edible weeds. Gail in New South Wales, I need to know after cutting back a mandarin tree. Um, how, and now that it's new growth at the bottom of the trunk, do I cut those off? Absolutely. At the bottom of the trunk, you don't want any suckers coming coming up or coming off. And you don't cut them off. Pull them away with your hand. So literally pull them away from the stem. If you do that, you'll blind any buds so you won't get any new regrowth from that area. That's really important. With all grafted plants, you don't want the rootstock coming up and taking over. You don't want water shoots coming over and taking over the main stem. What you'll do by doing that is you'll push all the good growth up into the areas where you've cut back your mandarin tree. You'll end up with some great new growth. Now, I'm having a look through here. Teller in Aberdeen. I've allowed my wormwood hedge to flower. It looks really messy, but will it self-sow? Um, it depends on your soil type that you've got, and you, know, you are getting rainfall this time of the year, so there is a chance that it would start to, if there's any seed that's fully developed, to start to germinate and start to take off. 
I wouldn't recommend you do that. I think that um, with a wormwood hedge, I'd go through and just hedge it back now and get it into shape. Um, but it's a fairly common problem. If you do get any sort of seedlings popping up, it won't hurt if it stays within the confine of the hedge. It'll keep it nice and bushy and healthy. But if they move outside of that, you might need to remove those or transplant them into another location. Valerie, Lake Cathy in New South Wales. Should I put Epsom salts on gardenia plants? Actually, Valerie, that is a very, very good question. And the answer is yes, it's not a bad thing to do. So gardenias, and we've just shown you a picture of one previously, um, do start to show signs as, as they start taking off and starting to grow, and they're not the only ones that'll show this, of yellowing in the foliage. Now, there's two types of yellowing that are the most common. There's one where you get dark veins going through the foliage, and that's iron migrating from older foliage to new foliage. But when you're getting new foliage that's got like a light green colour to it, um, that's a classic sign of um, a deficiency in magnesium sulphate. Magnesium sulphate is what you get in Epsom salts, which is why you would use Epsom salts over the gardenia plants. The way you do it, dilute it into a watering can, water it over the foliage, that should help. Eva, now Eva's in Perth. We're going really well here today, guys, by the way. She's got a baby, Adam Fig, and uh, she wants to know how to best care for it in its first year. She's hoping to keep it potted for as long as possible. They grow really well in pots. They love it. Um, obviously, it contains the overall size of the tree, so sooner or later, it will have to go into the garden. Pretty much the trick is feed it and keep the water up to it, and it'll grow like crazy, Eva. Figs are really easy to care for, really hardy plants, and they grow really well in pots. So that's all I can suggest you need to do. We're staying in Perth at the moment. We've gone to East Remantle. Uh, this is Linda. Hello, I'm, plant, I'm planning to grow two Mr Lincoln climbing roses once the major heat is over. Can you suggest what pot size and soil type to use? Yeah, okay. I would suggest that you get a half wine barrel. That's ideal for uh, a quite a robust climbing rose and they'll do really well in that size. Soil type, you want to use a really good quality potting mix. So again, to go back to it, but that Osmocote um, professional mix, the one in the blue bag with the red ticks, keep your eye out for that. That is the one you go for. It's um, it's going to make the world of difference to the results. Suzanne, we've gone to Melbourne. Hello, Suzanne. How do I get my Hoya to flower instead of just producing more leaves? Well, the trick with Hoyas is to back off the fertiliser, don't give it any food, and to reduce its water down. So you don't want to see it dropping older leaves off. What you want to do is you want to see it stop its growth um, production of foliage. When it does that, it's kind of like nature's trigger to saying, well, look, we could be heading into some difficult times here. It's time to reproduce. And when they go into that mode, that's when they produce flower. So less water, less fertiliser, and that'll help. Coral, not sure where you're from, Coral. Please remember, everybody, when you post your questions, happy to answer them, but for me to get it right, it's really important to make sure that you, um, you tell us where you are. And remember, if you like what you're seeing with today's show, please do us a favour, like, hit that like button if you're enjoying what you're seeing and if we're answering your questions. We, uh, it helps us a lot and it helps spread the word, which is really important. Now, Coral from wherever we don't know has a palmetto lawn. Palmetto is a variety of buffalo lawn. It's exceptional, but it really struggles on extreme hot days. Um, now, it may be that we're in a windy area, but are there any tips that you can have to reduce, to, to reduce the amount of water that you, you're applying every day? So, buffalo grass, if you, if you give it lots of water, if, you feed, if you're watering it on a daily basis and you feed it regularly, it starts to get thatchy. So, you know, it gets like that soft sort of, um, as it extends up, it gets that, all that soft material. What you've got to do is you've got to harden it off a little bit. So, I would only be watering a palmetto lawn twice a week. If you find that you need to apply more water, a little bit of hand watering in patches is really the way to go. As far as re reducing stress, heat stress, there is no better solution than sea salt. It really is a fabulous thing with regards to stress on plants. And for those of us in drying environments, the southern states at the moment, this is a great time to get your sea salt hose on out, hose it over all of your plants. It will help an enormous amount with regards to reducing the effects of heat stress. We've got another unknown, Brad. 
what's the best way to divide slender weaver bamboo and propagate by divisions? So all bamboos can be split. My advice to you is not to do it in the peak of summer. They, there is a risk that if they dry out after you've, you've split them, that you'll lose some of those divided plants. The best way to divide them is simply to get a, in, to be honest, in the case of a bamboo, because it's hard and it's woody and it's got a very fibrous root system as well, an axe and, and split it in half like that. And if you've got one, let's say it's a clump this big, you could probably get four plants out of something like that. They would then go into a really good potting mix in pot, ideally, and you would make sure that you are watering it daily for at least the next two months um, to ensure that it continues on. And would you cut it back? Yes, I would cut the shoots back by about half as far as those stems go. Leave some leaves on and it should recover and start to, to grow. But I personally, I wouldn't do it until May. I hope that helps. Now we've got, um, here we go, Jason, North Eastern Suburbs in Melbourne. I've got the I've got the lily pilly that's psyllid resistant, but every time I get new growth, it gets eaten, and the plants just aren't growing. Now Jason's helped me out enormously here by sending in a photograph, which really makes a big deal. He's tried eco neem oil and others, but nothing stopped it. And I think that's because the damage you're getting is coming from a grasshopper. It's really quite significant. So you can see all that new soft growth getting chewed off. In fact, you can see chunks out of some of the older growth as well, which is classic grasshopper, locust, even cricket damage. And my solution for that would be to get one of the dusts this time of the year. You can get a cricket and grasshopper bait, and that's really good when you've got plague proportions, but either a sulphur dust, ideally a deris dust, that'll do wonders with regards to controlling that, Jason. That's a simple solution. I hope that helps. Now, Michaela is just scrolling through so I can take a look. This is another great photo actually been sent through, and Ashley sent this one through. As we get some of these photos sent through, it does help me enormously. Remember, don't forget to like the page as you're going along. The more likes and loves we get, the more the, the love gets spread. So thanks very much. I'm, I'm watching as you're doing it too. So thank you everybody for your support. Ashley, the problem with this gardenia is actually a classic um, lack of the right kind of fertiliser. And it says here that you've been, you've been feeding with azalea fertiliser and mulching with pine. Pine's a good mulch, by the way, folks, for azaleas, camellias, gardenias, any of the plants like that, rhododendrons. Um, and the reason why you'd mulch with pine needles as a preference to others is to acidify the soil, but you don't want it to get too acid. And I wonder what your soil pH is here because the problem that we're seeing here is the older leaves are getting dumped. And when you look at the new leaves, you can see that there is uh, growth coming through that looks yellow. In fact, it looks iron deficient to me because you can see the dark yellow veins and the yellow stripes on the leaf before. This says to me that it's definitely not getting enough fertilizer and the fertilizer you're using doesn't have enough trace elements in it. So it's really important that when you get a fertilizer, you get a complete fertilizer with all the trace elements. And you know, plants use up to 60 different micro and macronutrients. So these minerals are really vitally important to their health. Most importantly, if we're eating that produce, it's important to our health too. So it's nutrient, Ashley. Keep the fertiliser up to them. A bit of liquid fertiliser right now will make a big difference as well with regards to um, the overall health of that plant. But, yeah, it's showing classic lack of nutrition problems. Visit the Garden Guru's online store and browse through a collection of high-quality, German-made Wolfgarten tools. You'll also find a range of books with information to help create and maintain a beautiful garden. You can also access the online store on the Garden Guru's Facebook page. Use the code GURUS for free shipping on orders over $30. Offer ends 31st of October. Jan in Kalamunda, she's got a Kensington Prize. Kalamunda's in Western Australia, it's actually where I live. So she's got a mango Kensington Pride. Now it's only about uh, 1.4 metres high and it's fruited. The fruit are about 50 cent size, should you remove them. Jan, if you watched the last episode of The Garden Gurus, you might have noticed I cut my fruit off mine. Um, mine would be about a metre in, in height, my, my little tree. And yes, I removed all the fruit. Now, the reason you do that is the plant will put all its energy into trying to produce a full-size fruit, which it, it can't do anyway. 
Um, it's just not strong enough as of yet. It'd be a lot better to put all of that energy into producing more foliage and developing a structure. And by taking the fruit off, you'll redirect it into growth buds and the plant will continue to grow. That's what you need to do. Once you've pruned it, give it a feed. Keep encouraging it to grow strongly. Um, place like Kalamunda, just to put it into context, it's, it's a higher elevation than the Perth Samplain, so it's a lot cooler. And during the winter, that can be quite problematic for tropical plants like mangoes. So the summer is your window of opportunity. So you really want to make sure you give it lots of water, lots of fertiliser and encourage it to grow really strongly. And this applies universally right across Australia. It doesn't matter whether you're in Adelaide and you're in the hills or whether you're in the Blue Mountains and you're trying to grow something that's a little bit on the tropical side. That's what you've got to do. Now, uh, Rose. Now, Rose who I'm not sure where you're from, but Rose has got rust running on her client, running rampant on her client's roses. Roses, roses, I like that. You've been spraying and removing leaves and you've told them not to water at night, but it keeps coming back. If it's rust, it tends to be something that is spread through uh, high humidity. And um, it, it is something that's sort of popping up quite regularly in our questions that we've got coming through each week. And rust needs to be treated with a specific type of fungicide, which you've got to get from your local garden centre. But you also need to understand that one of the important things, one of the things that triggers it is that humidity. So if you're not getting airflow through your roses, it's worthwhile going back and pruning them back well, reasonably hard, selectively pruning them to try and open them up and get a lot of airflow through them. That's very, very important. And then um, I, the way I would go through the process of treating it is I would go and I would, I would apply the fungicide straight away. I would then apply it a week later and I would apply it a week later. And you should break the cycle of the, the fungal infection occurring on the plant. Um, so the, the peak of summer is usually the best time. But if you're in, the, in more of a tropical environment, you're going to have to work a bit harder at this. No real easy solution, but one thing you do have to do is treat it because it'll defoliate all of your roses if you're not careful. This same rule applies to things like black spot. And um, one of the things that Rose has brought up here is watering roses at night is not a smart move because moisture on those stems does help spread fungal infections. So, uh, and they, they tend to be very, very active and seeding through the evening. Hopefully that helps. Veronica in Sydney. Lily Pilly Hedge and something's eating it. We've just had this question and it's a really interesting thing. You've been spraying with soapy water, but it doesn't seem to be working. What else do you recommend I do? Either use one of those sulphur dusts or alternatively the Deris dusts. Dust over the top of the Lily Pilly Hedge, that should help a lot because it'll be grasshoppers, I'm sure, eating the foliage off the top. Um, Anya, Merry Christmas to the Guru tribe. Thanks, Anya. And to you and your family too. If I may ask, what is the best care idea for maidenhair ferns to get lush, beautiful leaves? Well, there's two things with maidenhair ferns. Regular fertiliser, they don't need a lot, just quite diluted amounts. Fish emulsion is a really good base to use across that. So regular amounts of a diluted fish emulsion over the top of the foliage and make sure that they're out of wind. They love nice protected areas that don't have a huge amount of, of airflow going through them. So I hope that helps you, Anya. So think about the, the most protected spots. Obviously shaded is ideal, but um, semi-shade will work. And, um, and yeah, a liquid fertiliser will help enormously. And fish emulsion does a great job. Keenan, uh, comment. There was an awesome segment about lawn care on Saturday's show. Thank you, Ken. And there was a great segment on lawn care. That really does help an awful lot at this time of the year, trying to get things. And, folks, if you want to actually watch that segment again, the easiest way to do it is to simply go on to uh, www.ninenow.com.au. You can watch the show at your leisure when you want. It's a nice, easy way to do it. Thanks for that comment, Keenan. Karen. Again, we're not quite sure where you're from, but um, Karen's nearly lost crepe myrtles with hot winds and heat, and they've lost all their new leaves. Now, you bought it quite big, so you've trimmed off dead branches and you've given it lots of water. Will it come back? The answer is, yeah, it should come back. Crepe myrtles actually love hot, dry conditions once they're established. If this is sitting in a pot, 
um, keeping the water is uh, water up is going to be vitally important. In the ground, once it gets established, they tend to be able to handle extremes quite well, albeit they do love keeping uh, the roots nice and moist and cool. So mulching around the surface of the, of the soil at the drop zone, that's basically where the canopy comes around the outside, um, around there, a nice big layer of mulch will also help. And of course, soaking the soil after any kind of shock with sea sol is going to help enormously. Let's keep rolling along. Oh, okay, Julie from Greystains in New South Wales has got a very good one here. This is, um, she was given a cutting of a queen of the night that had white flowers from her mum. She's had it in a garden for around three years and it's finally flowered. And guess what? Take a look at this. I think we've got it coming up. Um, it's got red flowers. How did this happen? Now, there's one of two things. Mum's accidentally given you a cutting of the red version, which is possible, or the parents of the, of the white plant that your mum has, uh, one of those parents had a red flower and you've got what we call reversion. So it's reverted back to one of the, uh, one of the parents. These things sometimes happen. Uh, it's a beautiful red flower. I'd be very happy with it. And I can see there's lots of buds coming through. So yeah, I think you'll be fine. Uh, it's just one of those things. I'll take another cutting though of her white one and uh, hopefully you'll get a white one. That's quite unusual, but quite an interesting one to share with everybody. Thank you, Julie, that was great. Sylvia in Melbourne, Victoria. She's got two five-year-old cherry trees in pots. One of them started growing an orange-coloured fungus like mushrooms on it. Now, I'm a bit unsure, and it would really help me an awful lot if you'd send us a photo, Sylvia, but um, looking at it or thinking it through, generally orange coloured funguses growing on a stem, that would be what we call a saprophytic fungus. So it's eating dead wood and that would suggest that one of the trees, these five-year-old trees, has got a bit of dead wood sitting inside it and this is not going to hurt the plant, it's just eating that dead wood away slowly. I'd still remove it. If the orange fungus uh, is growing in the soil, that's kind of different problem again. Still probably not an issue, it just indicates that the soil uh, might need a little bit of sweetening. It might be just a bit on the sour side. So adding a little bit of um, little bit of um, lime, garden lime or dolomite will help enormously. You can hear me thinking as we're going along here, which is great. You're throwing some great questions my way. Now, staying in Melbourne, Helen. Hello, Helen. How are you? Uh, can you help me or can you tell me if it's okay to put weed killer at the base of a climbing rose, please? I can't weed the areas. The prickles hurt, but it's starting to look very jack and the beanstalk. Merry Christmas to the cast and crew. Thank you very much, Helen. Merry Christmas to you and your family. I would much prefer you didn't apply a weed killer to the base of anything. Um, keeping weed killers away from plants is the wisest move. And a simple way to knock those weeds back might be just to go and grab some newspaper and put it around the base and then mulch over the top and smother them out. Um, a nice thick layer of mulch, about 100 mil, that's about that depth, I suppose, um, on top of newspaper should take out the majority of those weeds without you having to go back and do any hand weeding because um, that, that is a problem. But I'd avoid using chemicals. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of companies out there promoting that they've got um, a natural herbicide uh, and they're using things like clove oil or um, there's also things like salts and vinegar. And those things are not exactly safe in my opinion. They're still, if they kill a weed, they're still going to kill a plant and that's really what you don't want to come in contact with your favourite climbing row. So I hope that that helps a little bit. Um, we're staying in Victoria. We've gone to Geelong. Hello Mel and hello to everybody in Geelong. I've got an auntie who lives in Geelong in Hyden and um, Aunty Leslie, hello if you're out there, Aunty Leslie. Uh, she's got a beautiful garden. My lily pillies look dry and they're constantly covered in spider webs. <gasps> We've moved mulch away and added wetting agent and lots of watering. Small amounts of new growth coming. Is there anything, anything else we can do? The spider webs is the giveaway. Great, great observation. Now, if you're getting this spider webbing going through your lily pillies, you have red spider mite affecting them. And uh, that's a significant problem, particularly if it's caused them to the point of them defoliating, looking dry. And it's a really serious problem and you need to get on top of it right now. One of two ways, you can immediately coat them with a really strong spray 
of a horticultural oil, one of those eco oils or white oil, and uh, that will help knock them back. It's not going to get rid of them completely, but it'll certainly help knock them back. The other thing is jump online. You can go to something like uh, thegoodbug.com. I think it's goodbugs.com.au. Do a Google for it. They will send you a tube in the mail of predatory mites, and you could just open that tube up, pop that in, in amongst your lily pillies, and those predatory mites will move through, and over a probably three to four-week period, will really get control of all the mites that are causing this problem. This red spider mite tends to occur as the weather gets drier um, and you'll start to see the damage really start to appear. And when it's really bad, that's when you start to see a lot of webbing occurring. They're not spider webs, they're mite webs. I hope that helps. Roz in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. Hello to everybody in Sydney, in New South Wales. Um, we're thinking of you over there as you're going into a difficult time again. Feels like this is never ending. I'm hoping that this ends soon for you guys. Um, Roz, in the, in the Blue Mountains, you want to grow cherries. Is it best to plant two for pollination? Absolutely, Roz. There are a lot of cherries in the Blue Mountains and there would be natural cross-pollination, but play it safe. Uh, there's a lot of different varieties, so it gets down to your flavour, what you prefer. Probably my favourite two that would be great cross-pollinators, Stella and Bing. Both of them producing beautiful fruit, really good quality fruit, and they're great cross-pollinators. Cross okay, Myrtle in Melbourne. Hello, Myrtle. Got a grapevine. It started off doing well at the start of spring with green foliage, but now it's curling with brown at the edges of the leaves and brown dots in the middle. What does it mean? It's highly likely that you have gone and got yourself some mildew problems, which have been really common right across the country. Um, there's not a lot you can do just at the moment. You can spray. There's a couple of sprays out that you can spray this time of the year with. These are fungicides. Um, it is a fungus that's causing the problem. High humidity is triggering it. What I would do, Myrtle, is I'd give it a bit of a trim. Take some of that old foliage off. Give it a bit of a spray. And I hope that that helps. The best time to spray for these really is to get control of them is during the winter. So a good spray of, of a copper oxychloride or cupric hydroxide, something like coside, um, and even, even just to make sure that you don't have any mite damage as well, uh, using lime sulfur sprays in the winter. Um, during the summer, it's a lot harder to get control of these problems, but it's not impossible. So, so give that a bit of a spray and hopefully you don't lose any fruit. Keenan in Wonthaggy in Victoria. Hi, Keenan. My strawberry plant is starting to get runners on it whilst it's fruiting. Should I remove the runners so the plant can put more energy into the fruit? You don't have to, Keenan. It's natural. It's what they should be doing now. Those runners will be your fruiting plants next season. I'd leave them. Let Mother Nature do her thing. It's not going to stop them producing fruit for you. Janice in Seaford in Victoria. Hello. How can I get my avocado tree to have fruit? which gets larger than a tiny pea size, which then drops off. Okay, first thing first, you need to apply a fruit-promoting fertiliser. There are a bunch of them out there. Um, you'll see it on the label. It'll say for citrus and fruiting plants or something like that. Um, you need to be applying that. Basically, you needed to be applying it about two months ago. I would suggest that you look at um, applying some now build up your your um, your nutrients in the soil. Sometimes uh, lack of correct pollination, and normally avocados are actually pollinated by flies, believe it or not, um, that can also cause a problem. The second thing is that uh, that you might want to keep your eye out for is wind. If like sometimes when we get excessive winds, it'll blow the um, the young fruit off. But it should start to to set fruit as it gets more mature. I hope that helps a little bit. I have one tree that's covered in fruit this year. Have another of my mature trees, hardly any fruit on it at all. And the the difference between the two is one's in a protected position in the garden. The one that's in a real exposed position has hardly got any fruit on. It's because we had a lot of early winds as the fruit was setting. Maria in Adelaide, she's got a comment about a plant. Her young lemon tree's leaves are going yellow. It did have two small lemons, but we picked them off to get the tree going. You're doing the right thing, Maria. Lemons are like gardenias, as I was talking about before. You need to be feeding them. They're prolific feeders during the warm months. Now's the time to feed it, encourage it to get growing. Net yellow indicates that it's lacking some trace elements. So make sure that your fertiliser has got a good mix of trace elements in there. And the way you do that is look on the label. You should see a big long list 
of macro and micronutrients. So your three major macronutrients and then all your micronutrients will all be listed underneath. That should help you out a lot. Okay. Uh, let's have a look here. We're in, we know we're in WA because Amy has told us that she's looking for the best preparation for a WA native garden on a block that's just been left sandy with rubble after building. Well, remove the rubble, absolutely. Don't do anything to the sand. Leave it as it is because if you're using local native plants, they will have adapted to that environment. And the best way to plant them is actually in tubes, not in, you don't need to necessarily use big pots. The best time to do it actually is sort of in that May period after we've had our first sort of rains as the winter starts to come in. Doing it right now means that you'll probably have to irrigate them through the summer months to keep them alive. But um, don't improve your sand. You actually don't need to do anything if you're using varieties that are indigenous to your local area. I hope that helps, Amy. Heading up to the Gold Park. We are everywhere today. Thanks so much for your contributions. It's so good to have such widespread right across the country. Um, we're in the Gold Coast in Queensland. Pat's got a gardenia hedge that doesn't seem to be growing much. It's still healthy and green and you've got no bugs, you're just trying to get some growth. And feeding's the key. All-round fertiliser, encourage it along. It'll start flushing foliage through and that'll that'll get it thicker and bushier and then you start need to, sh to shape it as you go along, Pat. But great news that it's, uh, it's healthy and green. That's the best sign. Uh, with everybody with gardenias, adding a little bit of iron sulphate this time of the year will help them get that dark green glossy foliage if that's what you're looking for. Just a handy little tip. Valerie in Cathy in New South Wales, any tips to starting an Espelia lime tree? Yeah, get your framework in place first, um, Valerie. That's the key. And uh, what you want to do is plant your tree dead in the centre. So you've got your, your outside frame posts. Ideally, at uh, so you should have maybe one central one where you're actually going to plant your tree. And then you have two at about one and a half metres on either side. Then plant your, your lime next to it. Have your wires running across, probably four to five of them. And then as the plant grows up, take those side shoots and just keep encouraging them and training them along and you pick any side growth that's coming off and it just pushes them along the wire. You'll end up with a beautiful flat espalier. As simple as that. Now I reckon that this next picture, and I think Jimmy's gonna put it up on the screen for us right now, this next picture is one of the all-time classic examples of an unusual deficiency. And I don't often get to see uh, deficiencies quite like this one, but um, when you get a copper deficiency, you'll get strange curling of the foliage. And I'm used to seeing it on the outside of the leaf curling down like that. In this instance, the whole leaf is curling under like that. It can be caused by a couple of other things, but I actually think that this is a copper deficiency in a mandarin. It's very, very unusual, but it is a classic sign of a plant needing trace elements to be added to the soil. Now, rock minerals, as a general comment, are being sold quite commonly, but I, I'm not going to suggest you go for rock minerals in this instance. Look for trace elements that specifically have a wide range of key essential mineral nutrients. That's the only way you're going to solve that problem. It really is unusual, isn't it, when you see them curled like that. I hope that helps. Now's the time to apply. You want to apply it around the base, water it into the soil, and then you probably want to do it again in about four to six weeks time just to really get the intensity of those nutrients and what you'll see is the leaves will just unwrap like that and flatten out it's incredible mother nature's she's crazy at times let's have a look here who else myrtle from wallet in melbourne she's got a great find she's worried she doesn't know what to do it's in a sunny spot it's on a raised garden bed the leaves are browning is this because i water every day or not enough sunshine and i think it's probably more a mildew problem than anything uh, Myrtle, that's what I would suggest. It would really help me enormously if you could send us a photo. Um, but I suspect that it's actually more a fungal issue because I'm seeing a lot of these kinds of problems coming out of Melbourne at the moment. And it's got to do with, you know, this rain, high humidity, then warm, dry weather, sort of you get this rapid change. It can cause that with grapevines. Uh, Katarina, we're not sure where you're from, but what's the best products to improve Kaikuyu grass? Well, the Lawn Builder product is a fantastic product for Kaikuyu and it, and it feeds steadily. So my recommendation is you do that. If you've got dry patches, adding a wetting agent right now, which you would have seen me doing on the weekend, does make the world a difference. In fact, that was my Kaikuyu, Kaikuyu lawn. 
and where the where the irrigation is not quite getting good overlap, that's where we'll start to see brown patches in hot weather. And we've had a few days over the sort of the 36 mark, and that's when you'll start to see stress coming through. We are in Mundaring in WA. This is up in the Perth Hills, just out of Perth. Uh, what's the best passion fruit variety to plant in WA? Now, you've tried two over the last couple of years. They always revert back to the rootstock. Now, this is a really good question, James. Well done. So, the thing I'm going to suggest to you is that for those of us who live in tropical conditions or in sandy soils, we do not. Now, this is um, northern beaches of New South Wales, um, some of the north, north uh, central coast. Uh, when you get up into Queensland, some places up there, you do not need a grafted rootstock for those, those varieties. The rootstock that these passion fruit are being grafted onto is a variety called Passiflora carula. It's the blue flowering passion fruit, which is a cold climate passion fruit, which is why they're being grafted onto that rootstock. In the warmer climates, we don't need grafted passion fruit. We actually need seedling passion fruit that are growing on their own varieties. So that's all you've got to do. That'll solve the problem. So as far as variety goes, you can get whatever variety you like. Just get seed-grown varieties, James. That'll be the solution for you. It'll make a big difference. And you won't have a problem with that cruller suckering, taking off, and then you're not ending up with a really good-looking plant. We're back into the central coast of New South Wales. We're busy in that part of the, of the world at the moment. Hello, Liz. You've got a Cymbidium orchid. You've had it for six years. It's in a pot. You've bought it in flower, but it hasn't flowered since. You've repotted it. The leaves are dark green. Well, that's a good thing. Um, the suge my suggestion would be that what you do, and it sounds like a radical thing to do, but the flowering in cymbidiums is triggered in February. So you need to get as much light to it in February as you can. Now, that could be risky in some parts of the country, probably not so much the central coast of New South Wales. But in WA, there's a chance that you're going to get a lot of foliage burn. But if you have it in full sun in that period of time, or at least... Um, at least sun for much of the day, maybe some protection towards the end of the day, it will trigger flower spikes and you'll get a lot of flowering coming through. Um, using using a, a potash-based fertiliser also stimulates flower and supports the flower growth. Using a high nitrogen fertiliser will encourage a lot of leaf growth and no flower. So fertiliser, more sunlight in February... Um, you could probably move it out now. It wouldn't make a huge amount of difference because it's finished flowering and it should really start to look for as much light as it can get. I hope that helps. Um, Arani, now you're in Perth. You've cut back your banana a few, few months ago because it started rotting. Now a few banana plants have started growing. Well, that's a good sign. The rotting was probably a sign of it being cold affected. Um, the new growth you're seeing are suckers coming from the base, which is great. Keep the water up to it, keep fertilising it, let them get as big as you can, and then every 18 months or so you should get a big bunch of bananas. And once you've, once you've actually got your bananas mature and you're ready to harvest the whole bunch off, cut the bunch off and cut the whole stem off at the base, we'll end up with new suckers coming up and new plants. That's the beauty about bananas. One of the very few plants that run, so they actually move. They can walk away from where they were first planted and you'll see them spread right across the garden bed. Takes quite a few years to get, get too far away, but they do move, which is really interesting. And here's a little fact for you, and I don't know whether you knew this, the banana itself is not a fruit tree as such. It's actually a herb. And it's all got to do with the way that the, the plant grows from its base. So it's a herbaceous perennial. So you, you just keep cutting the base off and it'll keep growing up. Magic of bananas, they are so good. And there's nothing quite like homegrown bananas. Francis, we're not sure where you're from. Why do I get mold, um, why have I got mold on my pansies? It's got to be too much moisture. Now that could be just rainfall occurring. They should be sort of finishing now anyway. So I'd be pulling pansies up and uh, I would be probably treating the ground before I go putting any other seedlings in. And I'd be looking at ways to drop off. If you're getting rainfall, make sure your sprinklers are not running, Francis. That should be the big help, I would think. Now, Nicole, I've got a great solution for you. I'm not sure where you're from, but um, you can't get any avocados off your tree. It's six years old. Please help. 
Now, a little bit of iron attached to the end of a wooden handle really works very well. What you do is you lean it up against it. The iron needs to be an axe. So if you scare the tree, it should produce enough fruit. I'm joking. Um, but the thing with avocados is they do require uh, maturity. They need to become um, basically a bigger, more mature tree. And at six years old, yours should be starting to, to trigger flower. The thing is the flowering generally with most avocados is sort of at, in that sort of spring period, early spring, when there's lots of rainfall. But if you can, make sure it's not getting any, any irrigation at all. It really doesn't hurt them to actually be sort of shocked, if you like, around that period of time, because what that'll do is it'll make it feel like it's got to produce, reproduce uh, offspring. It's Mother Nature's magical way of getting more fruit on a tree. You stress them a little bit, they produce more fruit. Leonie in Adelaide. Wow, we are flying through them. We've got about 10 minutes to go, folks, to so get your questions in. Um, I have a very fast-growing fig, which is virtually no useful fruit. Last year, I cut it right back and poisoned it as, I was, as it was infringing on two neighbours. Now it's grown back bigger and better than ever. Help. Um, I'm not quite sure what you would like me to do here, except for to su suggest that if it's causing a problem for your neighbours, you probably do need to remove that tree altogether. The root stock uh, or the roots will sometimes sucker up. Uh, what you need to do is cut it back and then as you see any new growth before it becomes big, just pull it away. Don't cut it and that'll get rid of the tree. If you're trying to trigger more growth, you'll probably find this year it'll produce a pretty good crop of fruit because you've scared it. Um, what I would worry about is what you poisoned it with because sometimes that can be within the wood, within the tree. So my guess is, Leonie, that you do want to get rid of the tree and that's probably the best way. Cut it back hard, right back to the ground and then any, any new regrowth, just pull it away. You don't need chemicals, you don't need to poison it, you just need to just pull those away. You'll need to be vigilant for the next 12 months or so and after that it won't grow back anymore. Garden Express are Australia's leading mail-order gardening service, offering a wide range of quality garden products. Each week on the Garden Gurus Live, the team at Garden Express will share a weekly offer. So make sure after today's show, you jump online and visit their website. Coral is in Lansdale. Lansdale is in Perth. Uh, I'm wanting to grow avocados and figs permanently in pots due to the block size. Uh, any recommendations for varieties that will do well? So there are some dwarf Hass varieties of or a dwarf Hass variety of avocado, which is a prolific fruit. It grows really well in a half wine barrel. That'll do it. Figs will just grow in a half wine barrel really well. Um, and uh, the barrel itself will actually contain the size of the tree anyway. And the same sort of thing really applies to avocados. But... Um, when you've got a tree that's in that environment, you want one that's going to branch out quite young. So that's why a dwarf Hass would be the best way to go. I have a dwarf Furette variety at home as well, and I'm looking at its growth at the moment, and it would grow really well in a half wine barrel. Remember, very, very good soil, so make sure you go for the red tick potting mix. I know it costs more than those cheap potting mixes, but the difference between success and failure gets down to the quality of your potting mix. So please invest in that, Coral. I hope that helps. Vicky is in Berry in New South Wales, a beautiful part of the world. Um, one of my favourite parts. Now tell me, Vicky, you've got a fajoa in a pot. You first, when you first planted it, it had fruit, and then for the last six years, nothing. What are you doing? You're looking after it way too well. Fajoas will fruit, uh, well, they produce flowers. And the interesting thing about fajoas, if you, if you know it as an oblong fruit, and it's quite pungent and fragrant, and you'll find it very commonly used in the South Pacific Islands, particularly in New Zealand. They love them down there. Um, they grow very well in Australia. Um, the thing with this is it's a plant that produces a beautiful flower, and the petals on the flower, which are white and pink on the bottom, are delicious. They're sweet, really, really sweet to eat. So they're great to add to a salad as well. Um, but the reason it's not getting any fruit is because you're feeding it too much. It needs to be treated a bit like a good husband. You know, you treat them mean, keep them keen. That's the rule with fajoas. And it will, it, believe me, if you do that, back off the water, make sure you're not feeding it, and it'll start to produce flour. That's all you need to do. You're giving it too much love. That's not a bad thing, Vicky, but if you want more fruit, treat it a little bit meaner. Tracy's in Victoria. Oh, oh this looks pretty, um, pretty disastrous. The work, some workmen have cut 
the leaves off your rhododendron and left stalks? Should I trim the branches back to the trunk or leave them and hope for new leaves? Don't trim it back any further. Rhododendrons don't mind a bit of pruning, but if they're pruned back too hard, it can kill them off completely. Uh, fingers crossed it starts to regrow. A little bit of fertiliser right about now and make sure that it's getting water would do it the world of good, Tracy. I hope that helps. And in future, if you want to stop it from growing into an area where these workmen have cut it back, um, just keep trimming the stems. As they start to grow, just trim the growth buds off and it'll force them to branch out and get bushier and not so intrusive. That might help a little bit. Staying in Victoria, but moving out to Bendigo. This is Judy. I've got tiny red spots, bugs on my capsicums. Now, I'm assuming that this is on the fruit and your leaves are also curling. Now, the curling is caused by a deficiency and you need to add calcium into your soil. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, trace element deficiency is a common thing this time of the year as things start to really grow. So boosting trace elements more broadly is a good idea. Adding something like gypsum into your soil in Bendigo where it can be a bit heavier will help. Um, with regards to those bugs, I would get a dust straight away and I'd dust the fruit with that. So either sulphur dust or probably the Deris dust is a good way to go. We really have some good questions coming through. Jesse in Melbourne has got an onion weed infestation. She doesn't like using chemicals. However, digging the onion weed up to remove it's taking years and of course, they, when they seed, they, um, they're very, very hard to stay on top of. How does she get rid of it? Um, she doesn't like noxious weeds, and this um, is one that's definitely a problem. Jessie, the solution is to lay a really thick layer of newspaper, wet it down over the top, so really wet it, then put um, a big thick layer of mulch over the top. And you may need to do this two or three times over the next couple of years, but if you do that, you will smother that onion weed out. Um, it's the only way to go, because the only other real solution for it is to cut the onion weed and get kerosene and literally just spray over the top of the, the onion weed with kerosene. And what happens is basically the oil of the kerosene, it comes down and it goes down and it wraps around the bulb in under the soil and smothers it, suffocates it, and uh, slowly that will kill them. Pulling them out propagates them because you break all the little bulblets off and you end up with 10 for every one you pull out reoccurring. So I would suggest, I would suggest a layer of... Um, of mulch with newspaper over the top will do an awesome job for you. Lynn in Melbourne, staying in Melbourne, um, we have a very large old golden elm tree. Now, it's a very old golden elm tree according to Lynn. It shades the backyard beautifully. It sounds like it's a massive feature plant and it's becoming more and more sparse with branches dying off and falling off and the foliage becoming um, quite sparse. Now, my, you, you think it's reaching the end of its lifespan and you're thinking about a replacement. My suggestion would be that this is probably a tree that's suffering some kind of compaction in around the root system and I don't think it's the end of the run for it. What I would suggest you do is look at getting a garden fork out and go around, all around the under, uh, under area of the canopy of the tree um, and just poke holes deep into the ground. I would get some gypsum and I would sprinkle that over all the holes and I would wash it in. This is going to open the soil up and put a bit of life into the soil. That's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is quite remarkable, but I've seen it with things like Morton Bay figs that, you know, are a couple of hundred years old and starting to deteriorate. Getting sea soil out and soaking the ground with sea soil um, is known to stimulate root activity again and bring the, the plant back to life. So the combination of those two things, I believe, is the best solution to the problem. I think your tree, they can live four or 500 years old. So, and I doubt very much it's that old. So I'm suggesting to you that it's not the end of the run. It's probably more likely some kind of environmental condition that's causing this problem to occur. And I hope this helps. All right, that's Lynn in Melbourne. Where are we? Donna. Would my Maria Konigi, why, uh, why would it start dying off? They have whole trunks. Now, this is the curry leaf Maria. So we think of Maria's all as those, the paniculata species, but Konigi is the, uh, is the curry leaf. It's a Maria plant and it starts dying off. It starts, it looks like it's dying off the whole trunks. I've had the same problem, Donna. It's caused by a cholera in around at the base of the soil. Um, the plant will actually naturally survive it. You can treat it with a fungicide and it will help a lot. And it's just drench in around the base of the plant. I 
didn't do it in my garden. I try and avoid using chemicals uh, at any cost. And mine has kind of just bounced back and, and grown new stems and recovered. I hope that helps. Um, staying on Maria's, but this is, I'd say, Maria paniculata. Um, this is Michelle and Bustleton. She's, she's planted them five years ago. They're only a metre tall and she's looking for something that's going to promote their growth. Moraes are gross feeders during hot weather, so increasing um, the, the, um, the amount of water and nutrient this time of the year will stimulate really good growth. When you get really hot days, those days over 40, they'll start to sort of slow down again, but now's the time to be encouraging a good flush of foliage. And again, when the weather turns quite mild in the autumn, they'll flush new foliage again and they'll do it again in spring. So um, probably three to four feeds a year will really encourage them to grow and fill out. Linda's in Adelaide had a best look after um, Okay, I can't tell you what this one is. Um, Anantha's pencil, I'm not, pencil perfect. I'm not sure what this plant is. So I would need to do a bit of research on that one. I'll come back to you, Linda. Um, Cheryl in New South Wales, I'd like some ideas for a self-care garden design. Garden bed's approximately 19 feet by four feet um, and something that does not require much maintenance. No annuals, deciduous or flowers that could cause hay fever. Um, in Australia, we need strong plants that cope with heat. I have magnolias, have magnolias that do well, but don't have super strong scent. Just not sure. White gravel looks messy. House is a mid-grade brick. Ideas, please. Wow, you put me on the spot there, Cheryl. Um, certainly, there are some members of the magnolia family. I wouldn't be suggesting uh, things like um, Little Gem or any of those larger evergreen magnolias, but there are some really beautiful ones that are a little bit on the more compact side and more prolific in their flower. And there's a range that um, the, they were introduced to Australia, bred out of New Zealand. I think they're sold as fairy magnolias. They would be spectacular. They would give you an informal hedge in a long, narrow bed like that. Um, they, there's some that are fragrant and some that are not so fragrant, uh, but they look superb and they'll flower in the spring and the autumn quite well and sometimes you'll get a flush during the summer. I think that that would be the best way to go and it'll give you a lovely dark green foliage. But look, it's, it gets down to really what it is that you love the most. Um, if, you know, if, if you're looking at Australian plants, there's a whole heap that could go down there. One that, that I really love and would look great probably in the environment you're suggesting if you wanted to create a hedge kind of effect is um, the woolly bush. Um, Adenanthus, and it's a lovely fluffy thing, often used as a Christmas tree this time of the year, but looks terrific in that situation. And as long as you've got a free draining soil, it'll do really well. A couple of suggestions. John JR from Riverland in South Australia. The soil here is very sandy. Water sits on top when, and then slowly subsides. What can you do to improve the soil for your lawn and veg garden? We've just moved into the area. The short-term solution, John, is going to be a wetting agent needs to go over. It sounds to me like it's not getting even penetration through the sand. That's the first thing. The second thing is going to be improving the soil. Now, there is a product uh, that you can get in South Australia, and you'd need to go and Google it. So um, soilsolver.com.au, I believe, is the website. Go onto it. It is sold in South Australia. We use it as a solution to difficult sandy soils over here in the West. It's sensational. It's a kaolin clay. So don't go thinking that, it, that the bentonite clays, which you can commonly buy in the big retailers like Bunnings, et cetera, are going to be the solution to this. They're definitely not. This is a kaolin clay and it's mixed with, uh, with rock minerals and also silt. And then when you integrate it into your soil, it does a permanent solution to um, that soil wettability issue that, that's so common. That'll help you enormously in South Australia. I can't tell you the retailers off the top of my head who carry it over there, but um, by checking out that website, soilsolver.com.au, for any of you with sandy soils, perfect solution. Wow, I'm down to uh, the end of my glass of water. I've, asked, I've answered a lot of questions. And I think we've run out of time. Um, there's still, I know, questions flowing through. Don't hesitate to put them through. We'll come back and answer them for you. I'm really sorry, but we have run out of time. But I can announce that our 
packet seed winners, those Fothergills packet seeds, and thank you to our friends at Fothergills for giving us some to give away. Our winners today are Melissa from Melbourne, Neville from Carlisle in WA, Gail from New South Wales, Tracy from Victoria, Coral from Lansdale. If you could private message us your address, we will pop them in the mail for you. And the winners of the big prizes, the three delish books, are Kate from Queensland, Anya from New South Wales and Helen from Melbourne. Congratulations and thank you very much. Now, if you want to catch up on all the different answers, we've had so many different things. You've come at me from every different angle today and somebody, one person, got me with a question I can't answer. I will need to look into that a little bit further. Um, don't hesitate to check all of these things out on Spotify or Apple Podcast or Podbean because that's where you'll find today's session. You can live stream it from those platforms. And we will be continuing these live streams every Monday in the future. So you know we used to be on Fridays, but from here on, it's going to be every Monday starting from January the 11th, which is a Monday. And until then, from all of the team here at the Garden Gurus, I want to say thank you very much for your support through the year. It's been a very challenging year for all of us. To have your support has meant the world to us. We've got a big team behind the scenes here. Um, Mikhail and Michaela and Jimmy uh, bring the program to you, this particular program to you each week. And um, they do an awesome job. I'm the guy you see in front, but in the background, they're making sure that all of your questions are flowing through and that uh, you know, photographs are popping up and videos are playing and all the things that bring this to life happen. And uh, of course, there's all the team with the Garden Gurus that bring the TV program each week to you and everybody works so hard. So to have your support means the world to us. From all of us here at Gurus, we would like to wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas and a safe, happy new year. I'm Trevor Cochran. Look forward to seeing you again really soon. Thank you. The Garden Gurus is back on your screens this weekend. Tune in to 9 and 9HD this Saturday at 4.30pm across all states. And if you'd like to catch up on the previous episode, tune in to 9 Life this Saturday at 5pm. When in doubt, make sure you check your local TV guide. I've got my rig and I'm ready to go.